University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. This is definitely one of the more familiar Christmas songs of all time, right? Most of us remember probably the Jackson 5 version of it. Though, if we're honest, it's probably one of the most disturbing Christmas songs, if you really stop and think about it. I love how the king, the kid uh, is saying in the story uh, that, that he's willing to keep secrets of this awful malcontent against his father, if you will. Really stop and think about this for just a second. I mean, the kid is so messed up that he not only gets out of bed to go see if Santa has delivered the presents under the tree, but it keeps watching as his mother plants a kiss on on Santa Claus. It's a joke, y'all. Stop taking this so serious. He even calls himself creepy. He says, I creeped down the stairs. He's even calling himself a creep. And, And let's talk about his relationship with his father that he's so willing to witness this horrible act that he's not willing to say anything Because it wasn't just a kiss, if you recalled, even the mom was tickling, tickling Santa Claus. Okay, we'll just stop right here, and if you think about it, this song should be added to the list of songs like, Baby, It's Cold Outside, Maybe It's Time for a Redo on some of these songs. So I've got a new title for you that connects to our scripture this morning. I Saw Elizabeth Kissing Zechariah. Don't you remember that song? So as we enter into the season of Advent, we're going to be looking at critical stories in the Christmas narrative in a new way, and how some of them might connect to Christmas songs that you've heard, and others that you might not, in our series called Unfamiliar Christmas Carols. And based on how we started this series, I know that some of y'all take these Christmas songs a little too serious. So this week, we're going to focus on a Christmas carol everyone knows and loves, I Saw Elizabeth Kissing Zachariah. So for this, we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, which reads, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. So Luke wants his readers to immediately understand the context of where this is taking place in a specific time in history, under Herod the Great. Now that is a loaded statement. In the hundreds of years uh, through Malachi, leading up to the events of Luke chapter 1, the nation of Israel has been at war and constant attack from foreign invaders. They have faced the opposition of Assyria and Persia and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and now Rome. And this constant onslaught of dominance created a shaky and problematic political climate in Judea. Imagine in first, if you were a first century Israelite living in this political powder keg for hundreds of years, you and your descendants have been, so to speak, emotionally and socially dragged through the mud. Yet for the last five to six hundred years, you have heard from the religious leaders, God is coming. The Lord is on his way. And I'm pretty sure if each of us were honest and we found ourselves in the shoes of that first century Israelite, we might be thinking, yeah, right. It's more likely the feeling that that God is being silent, that God has abandoned you. It's nestled deep within the heart of the people. And they especially feel like God is not near and silent when you have someone like Herod ruling over you as this puppet ruler of the Romans. And to really make sure we understand the context story, Luke tells us 
that this takes place in the time of Herod. Herod was this person who gave himself the moniker great. He taxed the people on top of what Rome was already taxing the people. And he thought if he could rebuild Solomon's temple that was destroyed before the exile, that he would somehow appease the people. And we know from the birth narrative of Jesus that he was a suspicious king who stamped out any threat of his reign, which is why he sent soldiers to kill all the infants through toddlers in Bethlehem upon hearing of the Messiah's supposed birth. So the tyranny of this time and the description of God's people are key to our text. But look at what happens in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Does this story seem to take a crazy left-hand turn? Here we hear about this horrible, tyrannical king, but let me tell you about these two childless old people. The priest Zechariah would have been like a local church pastor in his day. He would have served the community at the local synagogue. And his position, also the Bible describes him, Zechariah was a pretty admired guy. And he and his wife, Zechariah, both came from good stock. They were descendants of the original Hebrew priest. And as Luke describes them, as blameless and righteous in God's eyes. But then Luke introduces a contradictory thought. They were childless. You see, In this culture and in this time, they believed that God controlled the womb. Therefore, being childless was a sign of of maybe dishonor towards God, that you had done something wrong, and yet Luke describes them as blameless and honorable. Can you connect with Elizabeth and Zechariah? Maybe for some, you've experienced the, the pain of infertility and others the loss of a child during pregnancy. That's an indescribable suffering that is crippling and isolating and demoralizing. And yet for so many others, you've had the very really human experience of doubt as a result of of other disappointments and setbacks and unexpected crisis and trauma in your life. Then there's the challenges that come with things such as divorce and becoming a widow or widower or, or, or dealing with terminal illness in a family or fighting legal battles or depression, or the unthinkable grief of losing a child. And many have experienced the loss of a job, the decline of a well-deserved promotion, financial struggles, conflict within family and friendships. For others, you've experienced discrimination, racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia. And you've experienced the very real experience of having your personhood denigrated because of the color of your skin, your country of origin, or of a genetic chromosome. And and when you've had the very really human experience of setbacks and disappointment and crisis and trauma, this idea sparks in your brain that maybe, just maybe, I'm not good enough. Or I don't have what it takes. And sometimes that translates into, where is God? Why is God not doing something? Is this really what happens when you follow God? Imagine what the Hebrew people are going through in this chapter of their journey under the tyranny of Rome and this puppet ruler, Herod. Imagine what Zechariah and Elizabeth are going through as they dealt with a lifetime of being faithful and yet not being able to bear a child to pass on their legacy and their name. That doubt is very real. 
It's a real human experience. As one author put it, doubt is a companion, every bit as resilient and persistent as faith, and she isn't going away. She has something to teach me, and I decide that since I can't shut her up or drive her away, I might as well learn from her. Look what happens in verse 8. Once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving the priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning incense came, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. We learned from the text that Zechariah's division of priests was up for service and rotation at the temple. And part of the priestly division was to serve twice a year for a week at one time in the temple in Jerusalem. And to say that the temple was a vital part of the religious practice of the ancient Israelites is a bit of an understatement. The temple was the center of their life and practices of the Jewish faith. And the temple was a place that all obedient Jews would have traveled to at least once in their life for festivals and celebrations, but also it was the place of sacrifice that were made as offerings to God on a daily basis. And this temple contained many historic and religious artifacts, including the stone tablets given uh, to Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. Luke tells us that Zechariah was chosen to go into the temple and to burn incense. Literally, he was chosen by chance to take on this very high and holy duty. This was an honor to bring something before the Lord on behalf of the people. And most priests would have had only one chance to do such an honorable task, if not any in their life. We don't know how many years Zechariah went to Jerusalem twice a year for this week of service. The dice were rolled, and he loses, and he loses, and he loses. But this day, Zechariah was selected for this high and noble task. And the place Zechariah was going to go was the furthest that any priest could go inside the temple, right outside of the Holy of Holies, where the people believed that God was dwelling. We have a a couple pictures to show you here of what this looked like. Here's the temple grounds. I think we have one more to show you the, the intersection here. So most priests would go their entire life without entering into where Zechariah is now stepping. And this is believed to be the holiest place on earth. The sanctuary served as the sacred place of connecting and supporting both heaven and earth. This was a big day for Zechariah. It was kind of like his Super Bowl or the Daytona 500, even though I don't understand how it's a sport to take left-hand turns for five hours. But Luke also tells us that everyone else gathered outside to pray, waiting for Zechariah to come out to offer a blessing. And after making an offering of incense, an offering of prayer, he would come out and say to the people, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So old Zechariah steps into this holy place, an altar of incense. God wanted the people to have this special connection with the people. And this was one of these significant days in significant ways. But if we know anything about the experience of the pain and frustration of the human experience of doubt, accompanied with genuine faith, this too must have been a very anxious moment for Zechariah. The journey of religious faithfulness and doubt is uncomfortable. He believes that God is faithful. He believes that God keeps God's promises. But, and there's some big old buts in there, Just look at his life. He's been faithful and yet hasn't had any children. 
bearing through the years of infertility and sorrow that he and his wife have experienced. He's been a dutiful priest, literally guiding the people towards God's truth and law, doing all the right things, caring for all of God's people, and that doesn't seem to make a difference in how his life has played out. He not only doesn't have any children to pass on his legacy, but it seems that he's waited his entire career to be chosen for this faithful act to enter in the Holy of Holies. And shall we even get started on the current state of God's chosen people, subjugated, not under the tyranny of Rome, but also under this puppet ruler of Herod? If God was so faithful, if God truly loved God's people, if God really was a refuge against the foe, all of these thoughts and questions must have been swirling through Zechariah's mind as he entered into the most sacred space on earth. He must have felt simultaneously elated and frustrated, honored and swindled, chosen and yet abandoned, faithful and yet full of doubt. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever experienced those contrasting thoughts as you gather and worship or have spiritual conversations with others? Have you ever felt like a phony in one of these experiences? Have you ever felt like, should I even be here? My heart isn't in the right place. How can I do this if God hasn't? My soul longs for this experience, but my mind just can't believe. The journey of doubt and religious faithfulness is so uncomfortable. But look at what happens in verse 11. The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine and other fermented drinks, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do you know the most common opening statement from an angel in the Bible? Do not be afraid. At some point, they need to rethink their entrance if always they're striking fear into the heart of the people they're coming to see. And as if the entrance wasn't frightening enough, the angel puts old Zechariah into the danger of having a heart attack as he informs him that his wife is going to have a baby. And as if this news wasn't going to, of having a child was not wonderful enough, the angel then informs Zechariah that this child is going to be a pretty big deal preparing the people for God's arrival. You can just hear the echoes of Malachi the prophet who spoke hundreds of years before this saying, one who will come to prepare the people for God's coming. The Lord will send Elijah to turn the hearts of parents and children from disobedience to righteousness. What would you be thinking in this moment if you were Zechariah? How do you think you would respond? Probably exactly like he's going to do in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure I am an old man and my wife is well along in years? 
The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to you to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not, un- and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe in my words, which come true at their appointed time. Poor Zechariah. I mean, he's running the gambit of emotions of being chosen to enter in the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. He's standing in awe of the mystery and majesty of God's spiritual presence among the people, only to be shocked in fear at the arrival of an angel and then the bewilderment of trying to make sense of the news that he's going to have, uh, he's going to be a daddy in his advanced years. And Zechariah responds exactly in the way that most of us would. Reliving the years, if not decades, of the pain of infertility and an emotional gut punch of such grief and sorrow and hopelessness and doubt. I am old, and my wife is well on in years, Zechariah confessed. I like to think that the angel actually struck Zechariah speechless because he broke the number one rule of marriage. You never reveal your wife's age, even to a complete stranger. But, But in all seriousness, This is what faith looks like after doubt. It's messy, and that's okay. Zechariah is not declaring a perfectly written statement of faith. He's not sure. He's struggling. He can't believe it, and that's okay. When you've experienced loss and setback and disappointment and trauma, to believe something hopeful and better can come It's not perfectly clean and organized journey. It's difficult, and it's painful, and it's messy. Look at verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was taking so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. So there is this actual tradition from the era in which they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle as he entered into the Holy of Holies because apparently so many priests were struck dead at being in the presence of God. They had a contingency plan to drag the priest out of the Holy of Holies area. So how ironic, in his first opportunity to declare how God was acting, Zechariah was unable to speak, but the people recognized this powerful moment And look at this in verse 24. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. And these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zechariah is struck speechless until the day his child is born. How do you think he explained this to Elizabeth? What ploy did he have to use to convince her that they should try one more time. Now you're starting to see where the title of the sermon comes from. I saw Zechariah kissing Elizabeth. I'll let you work out the intersection of infertility and God's promises of a child in your own minds. Luke gives us this extraordinary insight into the cry of Elizabeth's heart. As confirmation of God's great promises has come true, she conceived and the child was growing inside her. She praises God for this possibility of giving her a child. He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people, she says. God has showed her favor. Do you remember the profound theological questions 
sometimes we've asked ourselves in life, and there's that classic one that we like to think about that we think is deeply theological, like, can God create a rock so heavy that even God can't lift it? Sometimes we create these theological mental minefields that seem so impossible to get out of. Where did we get the idea that doubt was not okay? Where did we get the idea that doubt is to be unfaithful to God? Where did we get the idea that doubt is too big for God to intercede? Clearly, the people who told you that never read the Bible. Because Psalms is a perfect example of where doubt is a natural part of our faith. Listen to Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day in the sorrow of my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Here we see the raw and painful human experience through Zechariah and Elizabeth, the inability to reproduce, to bring a child into this world, to pass on their legacy, the very real human experience that would lead anyone to doubt that God has a plan, that there's a reason for this, that there could be hope and joy on the other side of such a horrible experience. But as difficult and traumatizing and isolating as these experiences can be, God is right there with us. God is mourning as we mourn, grieving as we grieve, suffering as we suffer. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God. We have the ability to experience what has already been experienced through our creator. God's abiding presence dwells within us in the valley of the shadow of death. The psalmist goes on to write, Look on me, Lord, and answer me. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemies will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. There's no doubt too big for God. Do you remember that story of Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Lost in the despairs of his own making, Ebenezer is met by three ghosts who take him on a journey through Christmas past, present, and future. And each stop on the journey is painful, because who wants to relive their mistakes and hurts again? At each leg of the journey, we find Ebenezer begging the ghost to stop this, to bring him back to his home and his bed, under the covers, hiding away from the pain and sorrow and the doubt. This is the uncomfortable journey of the human experience, to, to live and to be tormented by our past and our present and our prospective future. With, with all the mistakes and missteps and consequences of our doing, while also dealing with the painful choices and mistakes and missteps and, and consequences by the hands of others. Who wants to live through that? And of course, the journey will not end until Ebenezer is met with the images of his future demise, which leads him to ask, are these shadows of things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? The journey that leads us into doubt is a powerful human experience, and it can lead us down a spiraling path of no return. But it can also teach us something. It can also teach us it is the doorway to hope. We first see in our narrative that this is a time of tyranny and despair of King Herod and Rome, continued the heritage of misery of the nation of Israel. Israel longs for a Messiah, for a God to come. And at the same time, we see the anguish of this older couple who desperately just desired to have a child. The gospel opens in a place of overburdening doubt for a country, 
for a religion and for this old couple. But doubt opens the door for hope. And as we experience doubt, working through the many circumstances that cause it and and the emotional turmoil that comes with it, we can easily close our eyes and ears off to the possibility of a way out of where we are. The day after day experience of disappointments and setback and loss and trauma put these blinders up that block us from alternative routes of where we can go. But it is right there that God does God's most amazing work in our lives. It's right there that where we certainly would like to have questions of, of certainty ahead, for we assume that, that that's what faith is, to, to know exactly what's going to happen next. But like this older couple, can we open ourselves up to the possibility of surprise? The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a powerful reminder that doubt is a God-given human emotion and spiritual state. If we are truly made in the image of God, then we're made to experience such a powerful experience as doubt. And yet the same God that created our capacity for doubt also creates us to have the capacity of hope. That there is something after this experience. There can be faith after doubt. The psalmist concludes, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. Or like how Brian McLaren put it so powerfully. If faith before doubt is about correct believing, then faith after doubt is about the revolutionary love of God. Let's enter into a time of reflection this morning.